I read a lot, so I encountered a story that unites heroism, valor, uh, sacrifice, and faith in all in one story. And it's the story of the four chaplains. I don't know if you've ever heard this story or not, but um, it took place in February of 1945, actually in the very wee hours of the morning at 12.55 a.m. on February 3rd, 1945, where there were about, if I remember correctly, 902 souls aboard the USAT or the United States uh, American Transport. I think that's what the USAT stands for. Um, uh, Dorchester is the name of the ship. And they were going from Greenland to Newfoundland. And uh, they, you know, obviously being winter, it was extremely cold. And the captain had sensed that danger was afoot. And he had told all of the, the soldiers to be wearing their life vests, life jackets, uh, when they were sleeping. And many of them just couldn't take it. It was so extremely hot down below around the engine. So they took them off. And unfortunately, that's when tragedy struck. And a U-boat had launched a torpedo and hit it right beneath the water line. And the Georgester began to sink rather quickly. And all of these men began to run all the way up to the surface, trying and panicking. It was just mass pandemonium, trying to figure out what to do. Some of them didn't have their life jackets. They knew that if they went into the water, that they didn't have long to survive. You can't survive in, in uh, that cold of water very long. And so they were panicking, and many of them were just trying to get into lifeboats as, as anyone would do. And they overloaded them, and many of them capsized. And then people were dying left and right. There were bodies that were floating. There, were, there was gas and oil just throughout the, uh, you know, around the ship. Things were just floating everywhere when four chaplains sprung into duty. Uh, four of these chaplains, it's just an amazing story. There were two Protestant, one Catholic, and one Jewish. And these men began shouting instructions to these people that were in complete panic and pandemonium. For those that were, were going to live, they shouted encouragement. For those that were dying, they came along to console them. They were telling everybody to be courageous, to hold on. And uh, as men were trying to figure out what to do, especially those without life jackets, these chaplains broke into a storage locker and started passing out life jackets to the very scared uh, men that were, the boat was just sinking, these soldiers that didn't know what to do. And one soldier even tells how he was getting ready to run below because he realized that he had forgotten his gloves and it was so cold. And the, the Jewish chaplain said to him, no, don't worry about it. Here, take mine. I, I've got an extra pair. And he took them off and, and the man put them on and he was took a couple steps away when he realized and looked back that he knew that that man had understood that he was going down. He had no intention of leaving this ship and he was giving up the very things that he had. And uh, as these men were, were, were looking to these chaplains, and one man says, I was floating there, and I was wondering if I was going to die, and I could just hear their voices shouting encouragement over the entire uh, mass hysteria, and it's what their voice that kept me going. And uh, it, it was at, right at the end when four soldiers um, were standing there, and, and they realized, the chaplains realized that there were no more life jackets to pass out. And there were four remaining soldiers just panicking, scared of what was going to happen. And then they took the supreme act of heroism and they took off their life jackets and handed them to these four frightened soldiers. And then people can remember what happened next is these four chaplains then linked arms and began to pray out loud as the, the boat was just pitching and going down and they were trying to brace themselves, calling on, uh, calling on the Lord and preparing themselves for death. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. And what's so great about that story is that these men recognized that they were on a, a mission to give their life to save others. And that when confronted with the reality of death, they were willing to die so that others might live. And we can see within that picture, and we gain a picture of how we are to live, and that we are to invest and give our lives so that others might be saved. See, we are in this series, a little short mini-series entitled Finding Twelve, where we are to find those who do not yet know Christ and share our life with them and give it up if necessary so that they can be saved. And the, the foundation text 
ground zero text, if you will, is found in the book of Matthew chapter 28. This is our clarion call, our call to mission, our call to share the truth of Jesus. These are, this is his farewell address to his disciples on what they are to do now that he has, he has died, he has been buried, he has risen again, he is interacting with the disciples, and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he's giving them these last instructions on what they are to do and how they are to invest their lives, and that is to make disciples. And this message is entitled the Missio Dei, which is Latin for the sending or the mission of God, indicating that we have been sent on a mission. Each one of us, without exception, if we are a follower of Christ, we've been drafted into God's army, if you will, and we are to dispel or, or fulfill our mission to make his name known to a lost world. And it's not just for professional missionaries, it's not just for trained pastors, it is for the body of Christ entirely to share his message with a lost world. And today we're going to look at this text, and we are going to see what God has for us and how we are to fulfill this mission that he has for us in the spheres of influence that he has placed us. So turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 28, if you haven't already, if you don't have a Bible or you can't find it, just um, listen in. Um, and you can try to look it up when you get a chance in the uh, table of contents. But we're in Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading from verses, uh, let's start at 18, even though I have 19, but we're going to read from 18 through 20. I'm going to ask you to all stand for the reading of God's Word. It's our way of honoring uh, God's Word. And uh, let's, let's read as the Spirit has, spe- has spoken through Matthew and says this in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father and our God, we approach you right now humbly, asking you to speak to us. Lord, we know that those chaplains were on a mission to save lives, and there are many that have given their lives so that we might be free. And Lord, we come to you understanding that we have been given a mission that is even greater than uh, any other mission, and it's a mission to make your name known to a lost world. Lord, speak to us. Show us how that we might make this mission known, how we might fulfill our role in this wonderful plan of salvation. And Lord, if we, for those that are discouraged, for those that are going through a hard time, I pray that you do speak to them, and I pray that you might encourage each one of us to do what you have made and purposed and delight when we do. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So keep your Bibles open with me, if you will. And I want us to jump right in and to see how we are to fulfill this mission. First of all, um, we are called to go and make disciples, to partner with God in His mission to make His name known. And the first thing that I want us to see, if we're to fulfill our part in this mission, it requires us modeling Jesus' mission. Modeling Jesus' mission. God has has sent His Son, God the Father sent His Son to reach the world, and then His Son sends us. See, Jesus says this in John chapter 20. Let me show you this. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even, even so, I am sending you. See, God sends us. We are to first come and see and invite people to come and see who Jesus is, and then we are to go and tell. Come and see, and then go and tell. We invite people to come and see and investigate the claims of Jesus Christ, and then after they come to know who Jesus is, they, we all are, without exception, to go and tell. Now, if we're to model Jesus' mission, then it's going to require three things. First of all, it's this. We're to be loving the lost. We're to be loving the lost. We're not here for comfortable Christianity and to be with those who sound and look like us. We're to be loving the lost and just like Jesus did. He modeled this for us. And we see Jesus even being confronted with this and that the religious hypocrites of the day would get so frustrated because that's what Jesus was doing. He was loving the lost. He was spending time eating with those who were cheaters, which who were the... the uh, the, the con men of the time, the immoral. He was building relationships and, and sharing his love with them. 
And we see Jesus even responding when confronted with this. And they said, why do you do this? And he says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's my mission. I'm on a mission from God. And that's to seek and to save the lost. I'm looking for those, that one sheep that has gone astray, that prodigal. I'm looking for them. I'm investing my life to bring people and reconcile them to God. That's why I came. We are to love the lost. But that's not all we're to do. We're to also be helping the hurting. Helping the hurting. See, sometimes we look at things just in the spiritual plane and forgetting that it has a real physical um, and tangible dimension. Now, James chapter 1 talks about this. I want you to see this. Religion that is pure and faultless, or pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're to be taking care of those who are, are who either can't take care of themselves or are lost, the down and the out. They're hurting. We're to be helping the hurting. Are we helping the hurting? Are we doing that? Some of us are so busy that we don't know how to help the hurting. Or we've been burned by the hurting. That happens too. We have to be discerning as we go about this. But we, it's not just the widow and the orphan. It's those who are down and out that have been hurt. That are, that are going through really rocky times. It even means taking care of the, the immigrants and the refugees, which we, we talked about last week. And we see this within the scriptures. In Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel, this is God speaking to them, and he says he executes justice for the fatherless. This is the orphan and the widow. Here we have it again. And loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Now let me say this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. There is, there is not to be racism in the kingdom of God. For there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female. See, the kingdom of God levels that and brings us into one body, which is his church. And it's made up of every tongue and tribe. And I am grieved when I read certain aspects of history and the racism that was so rampant within the church. And it's a shame. Martin Luther King Jr. nailed it on the head when he said, The most segregated hour in America is the church hour. And that's wrong. That is wrong. God is to bring us into one body that transcends ethnicity. So we need to make sure that we are loving the lost and helping the hurting. And we also need to make sure that we are surrendering to suffering. Surrendering to suffering. Now, it's interesting when I talk about that. I mean, if you hear any teacher, and there are some TV preachers today that say that you're not to suffer. As Christians, we're not meant to suffer. God doesn't want us to suffer. If you hear that, if you hear anyone say that, don't even mute the TV, turn it off. Because it's wrong. It's a violation of Scripture. I mean, we see this clearly within the book of 2 Timothy when Paul is speaking to young Timothy and he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Or in Acts 14 when they're, when they're instructing the people, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to suffer like Jesus did. If we're going to model Jesus' mission and Jesus suffered, do you think that we're going to escape that type of suffering? No. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be labeled as intolerant and as bigots. We're going to have these things told to us. We're going to be labeled as, as foolish or believing a myth or a fairy tale. And people are going to, to use everything within their, their verbal uh, quiver, if you will, to fire arrows at you to bring you down. We must make sure that we are standing true and modeling Jesus' mission. That if we're to partner with God in his mission, we have to realize that we're to love the lost, to be helping the hurting, and that we are to be... Uh, not only helping the hurting, but we are making sure that we are surrendering to suffering. Now, let's go back to our text. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, the word go in Greek is aorist passive that is used as an imperative. In other words, this is a command. God is saying, without exception, we are entitled to go. Now, what does that mean, go? Does that mean that we're all to go to the farthest lands? Yes. thought I was going to say No. It's yes, in that we're to go and share whenever God gives us the opportunity to share. Now, does God want you to go to Timbuktu? Possibly. I don't know. Maybe. Does he want you to go to your neighbor? Definitely. Does he want you to speak to your, your coworkers? Positive. It's without exception. 
God wants you to share his word with, the, with whoever you are interacting with. We're to go. It is a command. And make disciples. Now, make disciples is an aorist imperative as well. And we are commanded to make disciples. And it's interesting. The word in Greek, uh, Greek mathetes, is the word for disciple. And disciple simply means learner. That's what it means in Greek. It means learner. Someone who is learning. A follower of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Here's what I mean by that. When we are to make disciples, I think we have a great deal of confusion about what it means to make disciples. It doesn't mean getting someone to make a decision. That's not what it means. Because someone can make a decision and, and not know what that means and have no idea what they're doing. It's the idea of someone who's a lifelong follower that is continuing to follow Jesus and look more like Jesus. Now, someone does have to enter the kingdom of God, and the only way that you can enter the kingdom of God is through being born again or born from above. That's the only way that you can enter the kingdom of God. You're not just born a Christian. Now, I I remember uh, several years ago when I was a youth pastor in the city of Chicago, I brought in three lost boys. I'm not sure if you're familiar with lost boys or not. It's an amazing story of these uh, orphaned Sudanese... um, uh, boys, literally, that had their parents were all killed. They'd been in internment camps, and they literally walked across the desert with no supervision. There was like two thousand of them, and then they wouldn't allow them to come into the other country. I can't remember what it was, so they had to walk across back the desert with no food, no water, no nothing. And and um, and then finally, they were granted asylum, and many of them came to the United States. And I had the privilege of interacting with three of them, and they came to our church to share their story. And as they're talking about how they'd been persecuted and what they dealt with, one of my students asked a very innocent question. And he said, so when did you become a Christian? And the man responded, and he goes, I never became one. I've always been one. And my student said, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that you have to be born again? And, 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 and I could see that there was a major disconnect where these men had been born into what we call cultural Christianity, and then assume because their families were Christian, they were born Christian, and not understanding that you can't, that's not how the kingdom of God works. It's not like becoming a citizen of the United States. Do you know there are two ways to citizenship in the United States? First, you have to be born here. And some people think, well, I'm born to a Christian family, then I am a Christian. No, that's not how it works. Others, we all have to, are, in essence, uh, we have to renounce our earthly, worldly citizenship and become, we have to, to come in as, in essence, spiritual refugees, coming to the Christ that way. That's without exception how everyone is to come in to the kingdom of God by faith. So you're not born a believer in Christ. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. And each one of us has to become a child of God through our faith expressed in him. So we have to understand that, how we become heavenly citizens. Now, how do we then make a disciple? Do we force them? Is it by coercion? Unfortunately, church history is, is dotted with references with people that have done that. Consider, consider King Olaf Tryggvason. He was a king of Norway, known as Olaf I. He ended up, uh, as he was pillaging around England... <laughs> He ends up meeting the king of Ireland and his daughter and takes a fancy to her. And in order to marry her, who's a, the king of Ireland is a Christian king, he has to convert to Christianity and be baptized. So he does so. And he, his faith takes on gusto. So he goes off and he, he marries her. And, and then he's traveling around and he encounters the, if I remember right, it is the Earl Sigurd, who was the ruler of Orkney, which is an island off of Scotland. And um, who himself was getting ready to sail out on his own little pillaging expedition. And so the king, um, Olaf, sends a message to him, and he goes, I want to meet with you. Come out to my boat. So the earl comes out, and Olaf says to him this, I want you and all your subjects to be baptized. Okay, that's good. He started the conversation. Finding 12. He started the conversation of faith. But then he did something that I would, I, I would encourage us all not to do. He says, if you refuse, I'll have you killed on the spot, and I'll swear that I'll ravage every island with fire and steel. And then just to make sure that you're good for your commitment, I'm going to take your son and hold him hostage to make sure that you're still following Jesus. Okay, that is what, how you don't start the conversation. And that is not how we are to make disciples. We're not to do so by force. 
This guy missed um, generations. He didn't know to take the classes that are necessary and how to share your faith. That is one-on-one and how you don't share your faith. We're not to force people. We're to love them. We're to show who Jesus is. We don't make threats. We're to make sure that we are loving people into the kingdom of God. That's how we are to make disciples, by investing and sharing our life. So how then can we make disciples? Well, here's a way, a good way that I like to look at it. It's, it's this, sharing stories. That's point number two in your notes, sharing stories. Now, why do I say sharing stories? Travis, is that in the text? No, but it's in the Scripture, throughout the Scripture. Here's what I mean. You may not remember any of the points that I say today, but you'll remember some of the stories that I told. Why? Because we love a good story. We love stories. And, and God is the master storyteller, especially with Jesus. Think of the stories that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. I mean, it's even made our way in, into com- contemporary vocabulary of, of people that don't know who Christ is, have at least heard of that. Because why? They're great stories. Now, what does that mean then, sharing stories? If we're to make disciples, it does mean sharing stories, and it involves three parts. First of all, it means, it, it, it means this, listening to their story. If you're going to share the gospel you need to, and you're going to talk to someone, you also need to listen. We're not very good listeners today, myself included. We all need work on listening, on hearing what they're saying, and hearing someone's story and what they've been through. And there's some pretty amazing stories. I've had the privilege of sitting across many of you for having coffee or a meal. I'm amazed at your story and what God has done in your life. And we're to be listening. Just like that video we saw earlier, the the Start the Conversation video, he listened to that guy's story before he spoke. And then he asked one question and got that big reaction. But he had listened, and then he made sure that he was very sensitive in his approach, very tactful in what he did after that. We need to make sure that we're listening to their story. Then it involves you sharing your story. What's your story? Do you have a story? What has God done in you? How did you come to know him? That's what I'm amazed at. I'm amazed at God's mosaic and how each one of us in all of our uniqueness has come to know Christ in in a completely different way. It's amazing to me how some people were delivered from drugs, how some people grew up in Christian homes and expressed their faith in Christ at an early age, or whether you were uh, so far away, or you were a, a, a drug dealer, or a prostitute, or whether whatever it was. And we have people that have come from those backgrounds here, by the way. What's your story? Share your story. Because you know why? People love stories. Do they not? I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember going to church, and I get so frustrated because I felt like the pastor was talking to this ideal and I had no personal connection when I was younger. I'm like, I need to hear about someone who genuinely struggled to see how they overcame. Everybody around seems to be work, you know, with halos on. But see, God has this for us where we're to be hearing his story and, and, and seeing the story of other people. That's why I loved reading this book called Augustine's Confessions. This is a guy that lived in the 300s. But if you read his biography, you would think that he grew up in the 21st century. The amount of immorality and just what was going on in like New Age thought and different religions and all he was going through. I remember reading this going, I understand this man. I share his story. And chances are that if you share your story, someone else has that same story. And they're going to be blown away at what God has done in your life and it's going to give them hope that he can change them. So share your story, and then make sure, because we have to, excuse me, as we we think about our story, we have to remember that we overcome the devil through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. See, by the word of their testimony and what God has done in their life, because people can't argue with a changed life. They can argue about Jesus all day long, but when they look at their life and they say, wow, something's different about them. I want to know who Jesus is. So make sure you're listening to their story, you're sharing your uh, your story, and make sure that you are telling God's story. Don't forget that part. Telling God's story. 
See, when Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me, he's, he's indicating that there's a story behind that. Why is there authority given unto me? Because I died for the sins of men. And I was buried and I rose again to declare my vindication and offer salvation for those who are far off. I am the reconciliation of God. I am the one who has removed the wall of separation. I am an enabled man to have a relationship with Almighty God now. We must make sure of that. We can't water that down. We have to make sure that we're declaring God's story. And we might highlight different things at different times. Just like the, the gospel writers did. Remember how we've looked at that before? Matthew starts off with the genealogy of Jesus. You know all the begats, the names that you always skip over trying to get to chapter 2? And why did they write that? Just to drive you nuts? No, it was writing for a Jewish audience of whom genealogy was extreme importance. Mark doesn't do anything at all like that. He doesn't even record the birth of Jesus. He starts with the baptism of John because he's just trying to get the facts in. And then you've got Luke who's looking at the genealogy of Mary and he's highlighting many of the miracles of Jesus because Luke had been a physician. So he has a very huge interest in that. And then John, he presents an entirely cosmic Christ to present to the nations. Each gospel writer had their own specific audience in mind and a different thing to highlight. And we too, when we're talking to people, have to rely on the Spirit of God to bring to remembrance what we are to share at that moment in time. And it's not just sharing that God is love, by the way. That's like just having one leg to stand on. God is also a God of judgment. Both are there. To say we focus on judgment, and we've known churches that have just focused on judgment, they've been imbalanced. Or churches that have just focused on love, they've been imbalanced. It's both. And we need to make sure that we, we talk about that. So we need to make sure that we are telling God's story. Now, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, ethne. Now, that's the word there in Greek. What that means is, is all peoples. It's not referring to literal nation states like we know today, but all different types of people and people groups. Now, if we're to do that, we're to go and make disciples of all nations, it's going to cause us to be a little bit uncomfortable. Because you know why? We're good at talking and interacting with people that look and sound like us. We have a very hard time of talking and building relationships with people that are different. Now, what in order for us to fulfill this part in God's mission, it's going to require us to be crossing cultural boundaries. Crossing cultural boundaries. Now, the disciples are going to be interacting with people of different tribes, of different languages, of different customs, of different backgrounds, of different smells. Seriously, if you've ever interacted with someone of a different culture, I'm going to tell you right now, they think you smell. Because if you're interacting with them, you're going to smell some things that are going to be weird to you. And I guarantee that it's going to be weird to you, but you're weird to them. You smell really weird to them. You're going to have all of these different misunderstandings. But we're to cross those cultural boundaries. Now, if we're to cross these cultural boundaries, then it's going to require us doing a few different things. First of all, it's going to be, require us confronting prejudices. How many of you are prejudiced? Oh, wait, hey, we got people actually raise their hand. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to actually raise your hand. But um, it, it's true, we all have some type of prejudice. Some of us have been taught prejudices. Some of us had it modeled for us. But we have to confront them. Now, God has a sense of humor in how he confronts prejudices at times. I mean, he, he brings it home in his word. Jesus tells parables about prejudice. Do you know that? And it has stories of prejudice. Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. That's a story of prejudice. The Good Samaritan is a huge story on prejudice because they couldn't imagine, the Jewish audience could imagine a Samaritan half-breed taking care of someone when they didn't. And, and you have other instances, like in the book of Numbers, uh, especially with Moses. Did you know that? There's a lot of story of racism in Moses' life. See, Moses' first wife was a woman named Zipporah. She was a Midianite, which some believe that's in Saudi Arabia. But some believe that he had, a, a, in Numbers 12, talks about this, that he had a second wife who was a Cushite. Now, the kingdom of Cush is in the southern part of Egypt, in the northern part of Sudan. It's also known as the Nubian kingdom, and it means that they're black. And Moses, as a matter of fact, it even says in Numbers chapter 12 that a discussion arose between his brother and his sister, Miriam and Aaron, over Moses' black wife. 
And they had a hard time with him having a black wife. So they said, well, he's not worthy to be the spokesperson of God. I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So they're trying to plot and figure out what they can do because they're like, hasn't God spoken to us too? And then God the Father knows what's going on. So he calls them to the tent of meeting. And he has a little confrontation for them. And he says, by the way, um, I have spoken to Moses, and you've got problems with him because of his wife. And you know what? I'm going to show you that I'm going to speak through him. And, I'm, and you like white? I'm going to make you really white. So he gives Miriam leprosy. Freaks them out. Now, they repent of it and step back. But it is a picture of racism involved in there. Because God's kingdom is to be for everybody without exception. The Bible does not tolerate it. And you see that even the Jewish race was to be a light unto the nations. Not just for one specific group of people. So we have to be confronting prejudices. See, that's what God forced Jonah to do. The whole story of Jonah is about that. See, Jonah hated the Ninevites. I mean, they were just the worst people. They had killed, uh, they had killed some of his Israelites, and he wanted them to die. So when God says, go speak uh, a message of repentance to the Ninevites, Jonah says, no, no, I won't go. And he gets on board a boat headed in the complete opposite direction. And so God brings, if you remember the story, he brings waves and causes the, the boat to get rocky and rockier. And finally they cast him overboard and that's when the fish swallows Jonah and he spends the three days in the belly of the whale and he repents and then God causes the, the fish to vomit him up on the shore. I would have loved to have seen that picture. <laughs> seen something like that. And then Jonah goes and he starts going into Nineveh and he, I mean, it's a huge city. Huge city. It takes him three days to walk through it. And he has this message of repentance. Repent of the impending disaster that God is bringing. I mean, it's one of the shortest sermons you've ever heard in your life. And then God uses that to bring the greatest revival in history. And these people all turn to, to, turn to God. And then Jonah, he's not happy. So he sets camp up on the edge of town. So he wants a front row seat of the burning. He wants to see the fire and brimstone come down. And he has a shade, and, and, and God causes this plant to grow up to be a shade for him because it's really hot. And he's, he's probably a little bit bald, and, and he's, it's really hot and uncomfortable out there, and God brings the shade, and he's all happy. And then he goes to sleep and wakes up the next morning, and, the, and God had caused a worm in the night to eat the plant, and it died, and he wakes up, and he's not happy. He's not happy. You ever get really hot and frustrated when things aren't going your way, and you react I had that yesterday. I was mowing my yard, and I hit this metal object, and my blade broke. And then, and then something else went wrong, and I was just getting hotter and hotter and more uncomfortable. And that's, of course, when my kids ask me questions. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You're angry. And that's, I think, how Jonah was feeling. He was just getting more and more angry. He'd already, I mean, he smelled like fish. He hadn't had a chance to shower. He's out in the sun. He's, he's done. He doesn't want to do this anymore. And he starts complaining to God. He goes, okay, I'm ready to die now. And he says, you do, are you angry? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, are you, are you well enough to be angry? Oh, yeah, I got reason. And then God says this to him, and I love this response that God has. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Some people think, think right hand to left meaning there were just 120,000 children. So it could have been much bigger than that. Um, scholars are divided, though. But either way, it's still a lot of people and also much cattle. So he's saying there that don't, don't you care about these people? Don't you care? Are you so racially blind that you can't see? And that's why the story ends. That is the last part of the story. And you wonder, and you're meant, hanging with this tension. Did Jonah submit and embrace God's plan, or did he not? See, God desires us to cross cultural boundaries. And that means confronting prejudices. It also means rejecting paternalism. Rejecting paternalism. Now, let me define that for you. Paternalism is basically this. 
that you are acting better than the other person and then they're not good enough. And everything that you do, your experiences, your background, and your education shows how much better you are than the other person. That's paternalism. Now, we as Westerners have a tendency to think we've got our act together and that we're better than other people from other cultures because their culture is different than our own. Now, we have to reject this mindset because it's not a biblical mindset. Jesus doesn't come saying, I've got all the answers. He comes as a suffering servant. Now, I saw this firsthand when I was in India, and I was working with uh, the Reaching Indian Ministries International. We call it Remy. And as I was interacting with them, um, we had heard about a church who'd come in and given all this money, and they wanted to build the building. And they wanted the building to basically be up to Western standards as it is in the States, not according to Indian standards, which are different. And the church kept forcing that on them, and they didn't realize that if they were to go through that, they would have really been shooting themselves in the foot because the, the, those who were there wouldn't have embraced it as their own. They wouldn't have been able to accept it because it's something from the outside in. And you have to realize that you're coming alongside of. And fortunately, they, they ended up acquiring an American architect who did it for free, and he went around and traveled and looked at all of the different architecture, and then he had... A team of Indians build, I believe, the building according to the exact standards of other buildings that were around. And then the people embraced it as their own. See, if we would come from the outside end saying, we have all the answers, this is how you do it, that's not how God wants it done. You have to realize that the Bible and Christianity is incarnational. It grows up within a people, taking root that way. So, so what does that mean then? It means that we don't come alongside, I mean, we don't dictate as if we have all the answers because we don't. What works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another. It means coming alongside and being a partner with. And we're getting ready to do this uh, relationship with uh, World Relief in June. And there's going to be people coming from other countries that are going to be coming in here. And many of them have come from a different culture than our own. We're asking you to build relationships with these families, not adopt them, to partner with them. Because they're coming in, oftentimes, they don't speak the language. They have no clue. They've, many of them have been torn from their homeland. They, have, they don't speak English. They don't know the culture. They don't know the smells. They don't know the food. They don't know anything. And many of us think, oh, they're just so uneducated. No, it, it's just, they haven't been, no one's taught them. They're not dumb. I mean, we say they're dumb. Some, I've heard people say that. They're not dumb. I want to see you go into that culture and how you survive. I want to see you learn a different language in three months' period of time while you're trying to get adjusted. You're going to have a hard time interacting with different customs and things like that. And we're asking, we're asking you to stretch yourself. Invite a family over. You may not be able to speak the same language. You may have a hard time communicating. God bless you. Take that step of faith. That's what God wants you to do cross-cultural boundaries, reject that paternalism, come alongside to learn, ask questions, and they don't know your culture, and you're going to find out stuff that you take for granted every day, and they're going to wonder about how this works, how that works. They're, they may not know, and that's great. So to make sure that we are confronting prejudices, we're rejecting paternalism, and then we're going to make sure that we are embracing God's plan. God's plan has always been to reach the nations. Always. And I am so glad that God has been seeing fit to make us more racially diverse. And I pray that it continues to be so. I pray that. I really do. I love to learn from other cultures and be instructed and learn about things that I am ignorant about. And we must make sure that we are coming alongside one another. Because none of us has all the answers. We're all learning together. And when we sat down with Mission India, or Remy, I remember sitting with them and we, we told them this. We're not here to teach you. We're here to learn from you and to learn with you. We're here to work together. We don't know your culture. What works in ours may not work in yours. And you know what? We might have a blind spot in our culture that you might address, that we can learn from. See, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable because we can talk about holiness. We can talk about entertainment choices. We can talk about giving and all those things are really personal. But when it calls us to step out, we have a very difficult time and we just kind of shut down. God's calling us to do this, calling us to action. That's part of our purpose statement is to love our neighbor to the point of action. Are we doing that and crossing those cultural boundaries 
and embrace God's plan. And God's plan has always been, as I mentioned before, to reach the nations. To reach the nations. We see this in the book of Revelation chapter 7. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice, from all tribes and all peoples and languages standing before the throne. If you have a hard time crossing racial, boundary, racial boundaries now, you're going to have a very hard time in heaven. Because it's not with all people that look and sound like you. Okay? Many of us have this mindset of, we're better. No. That's arrogance. Jesus doesn't say to those, I'm better than you, by the way, I'm God. He comes along to serve and love. And that's what God is calling us to do. So we make sure that we are embracing God's plan, and that is to spend ourselves so that other nations might be one. Speaking to someone from a different culture, don't assume too much. Ask questions. Don't be haughty. Invite them into your home. It's going to be awkward, and there's going to be a level of misunderstanding, but do it. God desires you to. And as you work with him, make sure that you are pursuing God's pattern of discipleship. Pursuing God's pattern of discipleship. And what I mean by that is this. When we are to go and make disciples of all nations, we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're not just cutting the verse off from there. It goes into the next part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, pursuing God's pattern of discipleship involves three things. First of all, it means baptizing all believers. Baptizing all believers. Now, if you're a believer, let me ask you a question. Have you been baptized? Now, let me, let me put a caveat in that. A believer in Christ is a person who has personally expressed his or her faith in the risen Christ, has repented of their sins, and then they are baptized. We call that believer's baptism. Okay, Baptism as an infant isn't really baptism, as I, as I read the Word of God. It is a person who comes to know Christ and then is baptized. And you see example after example within the Scripture. Have you been baptized as a believer in Christ? And that means it's an act of identification with the Lord. Just as Jesus came to identify with us, sinful man, we are making it an act, public act, where we are identifying with the risen Lord. It's also a symbol of our sins being washed away and us participating with the risen Christ in his resurrection life. Just like he was buried in the tomb, so we have died to sin, and we are showing that by faith in him, we are now living in that resurrection life with him. Now, I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your condition is. You should be baptized. The first baptism I ever did was an 83-year-old woman in a, a wheelchair in a whirlpool. My grandfather uh, helped officiate. My mother was there. She worked at the nursing home. I held the chair and rolled her back <laughs> and rolled it forward. Okay? There's no reason not to be baptized. Be baptized. We have some baptism classes that are coming up. We'll be coming up again soon. Pay attention to that in your friendship registry, and we will baptize you. That's, and some people, again, think that baptism is the finish line. They get to baptism, and they quit coming to church. No, it's the starting line. Notice, look back in your text. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, this is the formula, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them. See, teaching is coming after baptism. You're to be instructed in the faith after you've been baptized. It's the starting line, not the finish line. So teaching them. We are to be teaching his truth. Now what does that mean? Teaching his truth. We're to baptize them and we're to be teaching those who are followers of Jesus his truth. Does that mean like catechism classes? Partially. It means learning doctrine, but it also learns what it means to walk with Jesus. How do I live this life now that I have, I'm a follower of Jesus? How do I... How do I pursue holiness? How do I engage with my, my spouse? How do I work at my job? How do I invest my money? How do I uh, spend my entertainment? How do I think biblically? And these are all a part of teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you, all the commands of Jesus. Now, I don't know where this comes from, 
But many of us in Christ think that we got Jesus and that's a fire insurance and we're, we're all done. We don't grow. We don't read the word of God. It's like, I got Jesus. I just need the basic coverage and I'm happy. That's not what Jesus said. Make disciples is the lifelong movement of being a learner. A follower teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now notice all appears three times within this passage. All authority has been given unto me. And teaching to make disciples of all nations without exception. And teaching them to observe just some of the things that I commanded you. All that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you. Now, you can't just say, oh, I have Jesus and I'm okay. That's not how it works. The gospel is comprehensive. You get it all. So we need to make sure of that, understanding that we are to be teaching his truth in its entirety. Now, baptizing and teaching can be hard things because people fail and fall into sin. Some turn away from the Lord and pursue the world, and that's very hard to watch. And we're going to be assailed all the time as we're continuing walking with Jesus. It's going to get hard. Following Jesus is not easy. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be labeled. And that's why Jesus made this little promise at the end, and we're to cling to Christ's promise. And he says, And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, to the end of time, when he comes again. I'm going to be with you the entire time. I'm going to give you my manifest presence. I'm going to send my spirit to indwell with you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never go away. And we got to cling to that promise and hold on to it. If we're going to complete this mission, we got to cling to it. Hold on with both arms and not let go. You know, sometimes when, when I'm playing with my kids, my daughter will run up to me, and she, instead of giving me a hug, she goes right for my leg. And I, I, one of my daughters, uh, when she was in preschool, I would get ready to leave her at the preschool, and then suddenly she would attach herself to my leg. And I, I, it was like taking pliers to get her off. And it became quite funny, but it also became quite disturbing because the teachers would laugh, and they started calling my daughter Velcro because she would cling, and it's still clinging. And I would try to, like, I love you, honey. I love you. Have fun at school, you know. And I try to peel her away. I mean, we have to cling to God that way, and God's never going to peel us and push us away. When we're holding to him, he's going to hold on to us. He says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to put you in, in someplace else and leave you for a while. I'm going, to, I'm going to be there with you by your spirit. We need to be clinging to Christ's promise. If we're going to accomplish and participate in this missio day, this sending of God, then it requires us doing all of these things. We can't neglect Jesus' farewell address. You know, it's interesting. Preparing for this message, and I, I came across George Washington's farewell address. I mean, it's a work of art. It's very long. It's like 7,000 words. He actually didn't speak it. He had sent it and printed it in papers. After he was taking, um, as he was leaving uh, the presidency after his second term, he was leaving office and he left us with people. And uh, it was just wonderful in how it touched people's hearts and minds. So wonderful that during the Civil War, Andrew Johnson um, asked that it be, um, well, not just him, but the residents of Philadelphia asked the, the Congress to read it or have, one of their, uh, have it read in either the House or the Senate. And so they did in 18, I believe it was 1862. I could be wrong on the date there. And they started to read it, and then it became more consistent and became a tradition by 1899. And it was being read in the House um, and in the Senate over and over and over again. But in 1984, the House decided not to read it anymore. Because they said, though it was so eloquent, no one would come to hear it. And they'd, uh, the Congress is still being read, and there's thoughts, and each member is chosen. It's an honor to be chosen. It takes quite a long time to read publicly. Um, it takes, on average, 45 minutes to read it out loud. It's pretty long. But it's, it embodies within itself the values of America and what America is to be. The ideals that should be striven for. Now, when... The House decided to not do it anymore. There was a lamentation among people saying that we need to come back and remember the reason for our existence. See, I look at Jesus' farewell address, and we can't ignore it and not try to read it anymore. We must cling to it because it embodies the mission that God has set us on. It can never become commonplace. We can never forget what it 
points us and pushes us to be and to do as believers. We are all, without exception, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's not forget his farewell address. Let us, without exception, proclaim it. And if you are here today, and yet you have not placed your faith in Christ and what he has done for you, you can. Jesus died on the cross for your sins in order to reconcile and bring you to God. And if you believe in him, you are to repent of your sins, believe in him, he will save you and give you new life with him and new purpose and invite you to participate and fulfill this mission that he has sent us all on. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence right now, knowing that you are the God who saves. You are the God who loves. You are the God who acts. You are the God who sent his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sin, who, to take those who are far away and to bring them near. You are the one that pursues the lost sheep. You are the one who rescues and saves the prodigal son. And Lord, each one of us has known the sin that is in, within our hearts. We know our propensity toward evil and rebellion. Lord, we ask you to bring us back to yourself and empower and encourage us by the power of your spirit as we surrender and submit to the truth of your word that we might go forth to make your name known. May we be bold. May we be filled with love. May we help those that are hurting. May our faith continually find itself in action. And may we overcome the fears that plague us. May we remove ourselves from the, the comfortable Christianity that many of us have adopted. May we take the great risk of faith so that your name might be seen in and through us, through those who are the farthest reaches of the world. Lord, we ask your blessing on this now. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, amen. Amen. Uh, just a couple concluding thoughts. We do have our Memorial Day picnic tomorrow. Are you excited? You should be. How many of you are really excited? If you're really excited, you and are now volunteering to help clean up. Because we do need some serious help cleaning up. I would really heavily encourage you, if you are available, to do that. Um, it's a great party. It's a great thing to have. But it does take work to make it happen. It has a tendency to fall on just a few people. So we're asking you, when you come there tomorrow and it gets done, uh, it goes to about, uh, what, 3 o'clock, around that period of time, 3, 4. Um, help us clean up. And I really hope to see you and interact with you tomorrow. Um, while we're there, it's going to be a great time. There's a lot of fun fellowship, and it'll be a good time. So uh, please stand with me as we conclude our service today. Our Father in God, we pray that you empower us to go forth in the power of your spirit, to tell those who are lost that you are the Lord of all. And may you bless us so that your name might receive glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.